Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. I'll be keeping you company for the next hour and we'll be looking at some business and politics from here in Ireland and around the world. And coming up on today's show, Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times is going to explain why mega projects like the Metrolink and the Children's Hospital take so long and cost so much money here in Ireland. And just on that vein, the currency also have a very interesting article about if we actually got these projects right, how good this country could be to live in. And we all had a big surprise uh, a couple of weeks ago when there were some gold bars found in a National Party HQ. So we're going to look at what's the value in actually holding your savings and your money in gold. And finally, speaking of striking gold, the banking sector in Ireland is absolutely raking it in. Sean Keyes of The Currency is going to take us through their latest set of bumper results and we'll be looking at what is and isn't being passed on to us, the consumers. You can email me about any of those topics at takingstock at newstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter at StockNT. Recently, a large quantity of gold reserves were reported missing by the leader of a far-right national party were located, indeed, by Angarda Siakona. It was understood to be worth over 400,000. The party said the gold was held to form part of the party's reserves in case of a mishap in general, or more particularly, a collapse in the value of a fiat currency. So why do people turn to gold as a safe haven asset to discuss the staying power of one of the Earth's most precious metals? I'm delighted to be joined in studio now by... Nigel Doolan, who's Head of Trading at Core Bullion. Nigel, you're very welcome. Thank you very much. Now, first, Nigel, tell me about Core Bullion. What is it that you do there? So we buy and sell gold coin and bars for investors or collectors. Um, And that's individuals or it can be companies. Um, We buy all types and all sizes of bars and, and, and coins. And there's no... We're rare in that there's no minimum amount that you can buy with us. You know? Great news. Mm. There's no minimum. No minimum. That's great. Look, what type of person then does this? Who 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 buys from you? Our, our core market, I suppose, would be 45 to 65 year old with a, a male bias, maybe 60%, 40% male bias. Um, they're people who have investments uh, and they, they just want to hedge something of their portfolio and just in case everything goes wrong or in take, case things collapse a little bit, they have something that, that is working for them. And is there something about it that's tangible and physical you can hold on to? There's that sense, that's, isn't it? It's yeah, real. I mean, that, that's the great thing about it. It is. And it's when you hold the big bars, like you, we're lucky enough to get to hold the big kilo bars occasionally. And when, when you hold them, you really kind of get hypnotised by them, you know. Uh, look, it's, it's, it's the most beautiful, one of the most beautiful uh, substances on the planet and has been for thousands of years and obviously that's part of its appeal and part of its value. Mm. Well I'm not going to be able to buy one but if I were how much would one of those big bars set you back now? So a kilo bar today roughly around 57,000 euro. Wow okay right okay so I'm not in the market for that but I <laughs> want to go back and look at uh, how someone like you gets involved in this like yeah. did, were you interested in the metals or were you involved in finance? Uh, yeah I've always had an interest in metals from a personal point of view and then um Year maybe about 10, 12 years ago, I was working for a company that had a bit of synergy with with precious metals, uh, and we decided to start trading some and thinking that we might do some small trades here or there, and it just took off from there. You know. And do you need any particular um, qualifications to become a gold trader, or do you have to register anywhere or anything like that? You don't. No. Um, I mean, we have. We've sort of, we're part of the International Trade Council. We've been. Uh, we're, we're the Dublin Assay Office. Uh, we're one of the only retail authorized retailers of their products. So we try and get as as much sort of 
good due diligence from other companies that we can around the world. But no, you don't need any registration. And do you see this business grows in a particular time or cycle in the economy? So if the economy is doing bad, people invest yeah, it absolutely or? does. I mean, we, uh, you know, when when COVID thing started, this it just went crazy. The amount of people and the and the volumes that we were doing, I think we did a, a year's trading in the first three months of COVID. What? Yeah, um, and and those volumes kind of stayed, and then they were just getting back to normal when. Uh, Mr. Putin went into Ukraine and again, the whole cycle kicked off again. So you find it in times of political and economic unease that, you know, people will flock to gold during those times. So geopolitical developments like a war or an energy crisis or something. Or or the pandemic that we had. Pandemic, yeah. yeah. Just when people don't know what's going to happen. And where do people keep these bars? Well, are there loads of bars hanging around people's homes all over Ireland? I'm now? sure there are some. Yeah, I mean, we always suggest that you would. Well, we we have a couple of options open. We can store it for you in various vaults around the world. Uh, a lot of people, however, who who buy gold want to hold it physically, and those who do that, again, we would suggest a safe deposit box or. Many of them may keep it in their own homes, in their own safes. Uh, the, the other option, the other really good option that we think people should should do is if they if they don't want to hold it physically, hold a certificate and and like the Perth Mint certificate, which is government backed and government guaranteed by the Western Australian government. So mm. that you don't need to worry about storage or security there. Mm. Um, I just want to go back a, a, a bit to to why um, gold has held this. Um, value, this intrinsic value in the economic chain, if you like. So mm. when did gold itself become a currency? It became a currency. I think the, the earliest um, recording of it is about 550 BC in Turkey, King Croesus coins. Um, and and, and they, were, they were linked to, you know, they, they were used as currency throughout uh, that, that area at that stage. And then when... Uh, paper money came into effect it was you could still you could trade gold for paper money or the other way around which mm. is kind of like the way it went with the gold standard mm. and then of course it, it it kind of obviously spread over Europe mm. went on into the UK when it hit the states then around the world I mean it's it's you know the 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 value of it I suppose comes from its rarity it comes from it, it comes from the fact that it can be used in industrial uses, but also jewellery. People, all, you know, often they look at it and they don't realise that jewellery accounts for 40 to 50% of the gold traded in the world. So it's not all about big investments. It's not all about uh, industrial uses. It's about jewellery also, you know. Mm. Um, interesting fact about jewellery and the reason gold is so popular with jewellery is, you know, it's it's such a great conductor of, of, of heat. So if you leave gold out in the cold, and you put it around your neck, it goes to your, your body temperature very, very quickly. So it's had a value like that. It doesn't corrode, it doesn't deteriorate. There's a finite amount of it on the planet and it's always been seen as a store of wealth. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that finite thing because we're talking a lot about resources at the moment mm. and, and how precious they are in the context of the war and everything else, particularly in relation to energy. But um, is this is finite then or is, is there still a lot of gold mining going on? There is still a lot of gold mining going on. It, 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 it is getting a little bit more expensive and that's when you'll see the price of gold go up. Also, it's one of the, the things that uh, influences the price of gold. Um, you know, as I say, it's it, it's there's a finite amount of it where we don't know how much is left, but we've probably gotten a lot of it out at this stage. Mm. And that's there tends to there seems to be in the last couple of years, I suppose, because of the renewable thing and people trying to be as green as possible. 
there have been big, big uh, inflows into re- reused, recycled, pre-loved jewellery, mm. you know, on, on the market side. So uh, I think people are aware of how difficult it is to mine. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock and I'm chatting to Nigel Doolan, Head of Trading at Core Bullion, about gold, of all things. Um, just to, you know, try and get a sense of what its value or worth is in the economy in general. Mm. Um, and also, I want to try and understand why it actually holds its value so well. Okay, I mean, uh, figures-wise... Uh, the amount traded, I mean, traded in 2021 was 400, over 400 billion euro in wow. 2021. They're the, the latest figures, over two, over 7,000 tonnes. It was the seven most traded product in the world at that stage. That's very surprising. Yeah, huge amount. Um, you know, an ounce, we base our price on, and the price of gold, the spot price of gold on the markets is based on one ounce of gold. Mm. Today, that's around 1,770 or 1,780. It's in between that today. Uh, it's about 5% up on the year. Um, it hit its highest ever last May. It was 1,875 euro an ounce. And do you think that was because lots of people were buying during the pandemic, as you say? I do, absolutely. I mean, we see, you, you saw a steady increase in it. But the, the thing about gold is, and, and why it's seen as a store of wealth, is from, say, I think it's 2004 onwards, the price of gold has never dipped below the lo- lowest price the year before, if that makes sense. Yes, it's always on so an upward yes, trajectory. I mean, there, obviously, it's a commodity. It will drop as well, and there are these these dips. But it's just on an upward traje- trajectory at the moment. And some some uh, reports out by uh, Morgan Chase and Bank of America saying that they're looking at it going to two thousand between two thousand three thousand dollars an ounce in the next twelve months. Mm, when I was looking into this, uh, it, the same thing kept popping up, which is it's a hedge against inflation. Yeah. So it's holding its value in a way that a currency won't. Mm. Um, just some of the figures I was looking at. Um, at one point, an ounce of gold was worth say thirty five dollars. And now that same ounce would be the equivalent to what you could buy, but you can't actually, you, you couldn't use the dollar value. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's gone up X amount from, from then and, and I, I can't explain why. <laughs> okay, okay. well, I think the thing is that it does actually just because it's physical, it's tangible, it holds its value and the currency will fluctuate in a way that their price won't essentially won't Exactly, and you've got that. central banks stocking up on it, you know, a, a lot. I mean, we, our own uh, gold holdings, we doubled them uh, in 2022. We hadn't bought gold as a, as a country for 11 years and we doubled them in 2022, you know. And do you think that... Um, you know, it's it's obviously been an intrinsic part of banking as well and underwriting certain banks. It's still, though, uh, a part of that, as I understand it, isn't it, in some countries? It, it, it is very much so. And I, I mean, I think that's kind of like if you, if you think about what the gold standard was supposed to do, it was supposed to control the value of a currency. Uh, not everybody played to the rules and central banks didn't back then and... They still don't today. One interesting word popped up when I was looking into what happened in America and there was this notion that when they moved to paper money they had promissory notes which we all became very familiar with in the uh, in the crisis of 2008. Uh, so I just wanted to finish out by asking you a question. Is it a good time to buy now? Um, and if somebody wanted to try and purchase something like this, where would they start? It is a good time to buy now. I mean, I think it's a good time to buy now for the reason that it's going in an upward trajectory. Everybody, you know, when I say people more uh, with more knowledge than me even are saying that, yes, it's going it's going higher. So 
it's always a good time to buy gold, I think, if you're going to hold it from a, a medium to long term, okay? If you can ride out those dips that we spoke about earlier on, you're always pretty much going to do well on it over time. Um, look, if somebody wants to, to buy gold, we're, of course, very happy to talk to them. <laughs> always open for business. <laughs> but just, just when you are buying, is, yeah. there, is there a cost associated with it? Are there premiums yeah, attached to Yeah, there are premiums. And, 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 and all dealers, all bullion dealers will charge roughly around about the same, you know. They can go anywhere from uh, 2.5 to 5.5% when you're buying. So that's the premium above spot. And then when you're selling, you have to also consider what the premium is. And, and that will differ quite a bit from, from dealer to dealer. Okay. Um, we keep it as low as possible at 25 but, you know, it varies. And if you haven't got 57000 to buy a full bar, you can still buy a minimum amount. You can, yeah. I mean, there you know, 1780 today will get you an ounce. And we, we sell even smaller pieces than that if anybody's interested, so... Well, look, that was fascinating insight into the world of gold. But for now, we're going to have to leave it there. That was Nigel Doolin, Head of Trading at Core Bullion. Nigel, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you very much. You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, I'm joined by the distinguished journalist, Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times. He's had an item recently in the newspaper, a very insightful analysis, asking questions about why it's so hard to build things here in Ireland. And in that, it sheds an awful lot of light on the intricate planning process and policy challenges that building projects face. Cliff, thank you very much for joining us again today. Pleasure, Mandy, as ever. Now, that recent piece I'm talking about um, in the Irish Times really highlights the struggles in getting projects built here in Ireland. Can you just talk us through and elaborate on what you call the playbook of problems that is causing these type of delays? Yeah, sure. And I uh, stole some of this or borrowed some of this from a, an international expert in, in the area, a Danish professor called Bent Flyberg, who's written a lot of this area about you know, how big projects tend to tend to be late and tend to go over time and tend in particular to go over budget uh, in a lot of areas around the world um, and, you know, with, 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 with the expected political fallout. But I suppose there's, there's a few things uh, that are obvious in the Irish context. The first is something we've discussed a lot in terms of the housing crisis, the planning system, which is, a you know, a key blockage, long lead times to get planning permissions, huge hold-up in the courts, uh, the government hoping to do something about it through a new bill, which is uh, due to become a law in the autumn. But some questions about that too. Is, there's no doubt. I mean, Eamon Ryan, the um, environment minister, has highlighted this himself that you know planning is is a key blockage. He was particularly referring to uh, train lines, and I suppose the the striking thing that put me onto thinking about writing this in the first place was his estimate or his department's estimate that it takes 20 years between the time a train line is planned and actually completed in Ireland, which is, you know, an extraordinary length of time. Mm. I mean, the, the second the second kind of big cause of delay is what I call the doing. Uh, the kind of problems, uh, again, that Flywork has illustrated in projects across the world that cause problems, you know, poor initial specification, poor costing, poor assessment of risk, um, and particular risks with really big projects of a kind never attempted in a country before. Like if you look at road building, okay, there's political controversy about it at the moment, but over many years, Ireland has become reasonably efficient in terms of building roads once the whole thing gets through the planning system. But when you look at a big once-off, like the Children's Hospital, something we haven't done before, studies of that and studies of the overrun there by, by a number of uh, accountancy companies, most recently PwC, have found that it was poorly specified from the start 
inadequately costed and hit by delays and delays themselves kind of open up projects to to, to further risk uh, which is something the National Transport Authority has has itself highlighted again this week in in a separate study and the third obviously the the big factor is politics Uh, I mean you you know about this Mandy but the peculiar nature of the electoral system uh, and the need to kind of protect even small pockets of voters from going offside means politicians are really sensitive. Mm. Uh, so, you know, in, in, in the doll they call for more houses in their constituencies, they, you know, they object. Uh, and, you know, we've seen problems in a lot of big projects, political problems, uh, as, as well as uh, planning problems, you know, in areas like the planning of uh, the new bus lanes and, and in, in, in Dublin, for example, or the north-south electricity and connector interconnector which is you know controversial among uh, the farming community up along the border areas because of their land uh, big pylons going on their land mm. that inter- interconnector i suppose in particular now is very important we've had a, a recent sort of um, energy crisis and a, a new sort of understanding of how vulnerable we are when it comes to energy but just on those mega projects the matter site the metrolink and that north south interconnector um you know, you you in this article take us through the cycle of the interconnector. You might just remind us all how long that process has taken so far and what the projections are in terms of delivery even now. Yeah, I was surprised myself looking back at it. The first export, sorry, expert study was published in 2016. Mm. Uh, but and, and of course, the big controversy has been, will this go overground or underground? And there are 400 overground pylons uh, required under the current plan, which, and obviously that drew hundreds of objectors when the initial plan came out and and is a huge political issue. So we got through planning and a legal appeal in 2017, but since then the government has kind of sat on it and danced around it uh, for a long time. So there was a second expert commission uh, appointed in 2017 to ensure the first one, the recommendations of the first one weren't outdated. And then I suppose you might say to be sure, to be sure, in 2021, a couple of years ago, the government ordered another independent review of the second commission's report. Mm. So this is kind of Sir Humphrey territory, you know, how do, how, how do we uh, pretend to be making progress on something without actually doing it? Well, you know, commission report minister. So ministers were obviously didn't want to make a decision conscious of the sensitivities. But as you say, this has now become mission critical for Ireland. Uh, it always was, but it's, it's increasingly evident. Uh, so the final review is considered by the Cabinet last March. Uh, but, that you know, the delays mean the interconnector may only finally be built in 2026. So, you know, it's a, it, it's, it's, it's a long way from the time the first export study was published in, in, in 2016 for such a, a mission critical project. And we all know how the electricity network, the electricity grid, the whole infrastructure is mm. so important now because our whole carbon, our whole carbon targets are based on 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 on, on electricity and using electricity for for everything from trains to cars to uh, to powering everything in society and, and that electricity being um, being produced in in a green way, which is going to put you know really significant extra yeah uh, work on the grid. I, I remember actually at the time when the the initial plan was published and those 400 overground pylons were were uh, published, uh, an official um, mentioning to me that if only these uh, pylons could go underground, we'd have no problem. <laughs> but um, all right, yes. <laughs> um, there, there was, of course, huge. You know, there were huge studies done on whether they could put the tables underground, and mm. uh, the experts 
you know, the experts say, no, it's, you know, it's not going to work. It's, it's too not expensive. feasible. Yeah. So. You mentioned there, um, Cliff, the environment, um, and that is a big part of the planning process now. But I just wonder, um, is the environment becoming more or less relevant in this discussion about planning? So, for example, we have an increased awareness because of everything that is happening around us about the implications of ch- climate change. Um, and yet you see over in the UK where that's having a negative impact on the electorate. But I just wonder if we're facing into what is a proxy battle on environmental issues and our emissions targets versus what the common good is for our society in terms of building houses, building big projects like this. Is it getting more or less relevant? Yeah, I think it's very relevant. Um, And I mean, you see it, you see it, for example, in the housing area where I suppose that the common, uh, you know, the common route in Ireland is to go from being a renter to buying a, you know, three bedroom semi-D somewhere. Mm. Uh, And, you know, that's, still largely what's happened over recent years for those that can afford it. The difficulty, uh, particularly in climate change terms, is that many of them have been pushed further and further out of the city centre. So we've seen huge building in recent years in uh, around Dublin, for example, in Meath, Kildare and Wicklow. Uh, and prices now starting to go up uh, fairly significantly in those areas as well. But if you look at what the Climate Change Advisory Council is saying, <coughs> It's saying, look, if we want to meet our climate targets, people have got to live in smaller smaller units, if you like, uh, be they apartments or houses, uh, closer to city centres, closer to where they work, closer to amenities, schools, um, colleges, shops, so that effectively they don't need cars or they need cars, you know, to travel much, mm. much lower distances than, than is the case for people living in uh, commuting every day. Mm. Uh, but as you say yourself, have we have we a societal consensus that this is the direction we want to go? Um, there's very little discussion of this politically. Um, I, I think you know, Eamon Ryan and the Greens would talk about denser developments and brownfield developments and all that. But the Climate Change Council is saying, look, if we want to meet our targets, transport is one of the key areas. And if we're going to cut our transport emissions, then people are going to have to live in smaller units closer closer to cities. And you. You'd have some sympathy with the younger generation, I suppose, because here's people living in three or four bedroomed houses, uh, you know, telling them that they should live in smaller apartments and uh, and, uh, and and houses, you know, yeah. on, on 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 inner city sites, just just to save the environment. Yeah. <laughs> And, and the politicians and the media classes are living in, uh, in in suburbia. Yeah, and and you'd really fear really going into this cycle that we're about to go into, which is the local elections, the European elections, and then a general election where the common good over the objections. Uh, wh- where where will that balance actually end up? And um, just just want to go back to the mega projects for for a moment, sure. if I can, Cliff, to, to touch back to the original point, which is why are these big projects so difficult for us to kind of manage and progress? One of the other things that you mentioned in the article is this um, idea that we, from the outset, largely ignoring the risks, uh, particularly with big projects, um, projects that we have never attempted before. And that when the the project might go wrong or be derailed, forgive the pun, there's still a determination to keep going with that project and and essentially throw good money after bad. And we're looking, I suppose, particularly here at the Metrolink, where uh, an awful lot of money has been spent on what is, on the, on the 
on the face of it, a fairly simple endeavour. Um, that is something that's in our psyche. We can't let go and say that that's wrong. It's not, it's not, you know, it's not going to pay off for the amount of money. Politicians, again, can't let go of something and say that was a, an incorrect decision. Yeah, I suppose the, the trend or the, the examples worldwide are of kind of show, big show projects that politicians uh, want to complete because obviously they're, they're seen as a legacy and, and seen as, as, as vote getters. And um, the Metro is, is an interesting one. There's a very interesting um, chapter in uh, Freiburg's book or, or one of the articles he's written about the expansion of the Metro in Madrid, uh, where they've had a metro for many years uh, and, and they know how to build them. Mm. Uh, and they set in place a project uh, in, in, the, in the late 1990s to expand their current metro very significantly and did it in kind of five or six years, um, basically by getting societal building, uh, you know, buy-in to the idea that this is going to be really disruptive mm. for kind of half a decade, but we get it done then and it'll be over. Um, the Dublin metro just just seems to be stuck um you know stuck in stuck in a planning process uh, stuck in a process of deciding where it starts and where it ends mm. uh, and the costs going up all the time and i suppose you know my my question is is it still the right way to go uh, i've got a fair bit of flack uh, for raising that question from readers and stuff that's fair enough people have have strong views on it and there may well be a case um still to go ahead but I think the case has to be kind of proven again on the basis that the costs have, have soared from the initial estimates. Yeah absolutely but uh, it would take an awfully brave politician to be the one to put the foot on the ball and say you know it's not going to work this way and we're going to ride sure. off that money so yeah, be, poli- <laughs> yeah. politicians beware. Just on the planning uh, system Cliff, maybe to, to finally finish this out. You mentioned there that um, Eamon Ryan himself has consistently reminded us how long these projects take um, in terms of rail and, and even roads, like, you know, so they're not they're not fast by any manner or means, even politically. But yeah. the new planning bill that is due to come in uh, to law in, in the autumn, I think, um, yeah. what's that asserting to do? What's that seeking to do? Do you think that will work? Um, and do you think it's going to make a discernible difference really quickly? I think it has some good ideas behind it. Uh, I'm slightly worried by um, comments from the planning community who say that they feel parts of it won't work. Mm. Um, so so that's a question mark in my head. I think the pluses of it uh, are that it's, it's aiming to speed up uh, the planning process. It's pl- promising to resource Board Planola or a revamped Board Planola. It's uh, promising to set up or is setting up a, uh, a special planning court. And, you know, once those, if those two parts of the planning system are really properly resourced and working properly and, you know, credible, I suppose, and trusted by people, um, that is that is a huge step forward. Now, I think the controversy is going to rest on who has the right to object to projects mm. and in what forms they have the right to, to object to projects. So planners are warning that the idea of excluding kind of residents association and people and, and you know people on that uh, in those kind of associations from object, from objecting to to planning in their areas, you know, is something that just 
just isn't going to work mm. and it's likely to be challenged in Ireland and uh, they may well have a case there. But certainly there is a, a case to restrict objectors to people who are directly affected rather than having the right for anyone to to throw a, throw an objection in, in in court. And and obviously, you know, environmental groups need need a right too because they're um, they're safeguarding a particular point of view, if you like. So it's it's a tricky line to draw in terms of who can object, when they can object in the process. In an ideal process, I think the fights would be had early in the day, if you like, yes. uh, at local authority level, uh, where the local authority is, is doing up a plan for an area. Everyone puts in their top and tape and the, you know, the fights are had about where's, which, what is going to go where, and then the whole thing can go ahead. The problem with the Irish system is that it seems to be chipped away at it every turn, if you like. Yeah, and I think I think the other thing is we're increasingly seeing um, situations where big plans are announced um, as an ambition and then they get unpicked and unpopular before they ever, you know, get off the ground. But I'm, I'm sure yeah. there's a long way to go in this, Cliff. And uh, yeah, I do think it's an interesting thing to assess as a job lot, like why do we do this so badly? Um, yeah. And I'm sure we'll be back again in the autumn talking about that bit when it comes. But for now, we're going to have to leave it there. Cliff, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Wendy. Welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. And finally today, 15 years after the banking crisis, 2023 is set to be the most profitable year for both AIB, Bank of Ireland and TSB is set to return its largest profits since the height of the Celtic Tiger years. But what's driving all these profits? Who are the real winners? And uh, what are they doing in terms of offering us proper competition in the banking sector. Well, I'm joined now by Sean Keyes, who's finance correspondent with The Currency. Sean, you're very welcome back to News Talk. Thanks for having me. Sean, um, now the increase in uh, interest rates right across the EU has uh, provided bumper revenues for banks everywhere, but we might just start off by putting all of this in context and taking us through what the profits and what the Irish banks have delivered in recent weeks in terms of their earnings. Well, it started, the, the, the first bank to report was bank was AIB, rather, for Friday the week before. And it beat expectations for the first half of the year. It earned over, over a billion euro in, in net interest income. And bank of, Bar, bank of Ireland followed up on Monday, similar numbers, similar, similar, similar magnitudes. And interest income is, is the real key number for a bank. Like banks can make money in different ways. They can make money from fees and from their asset management, stuff like that. But interest income is the money they make from uh, borrowing and lending. And that's like the core of their business. And for a long time, the Irish banks' interest income wasn't great. Uh, but now it's, it, it's, it's extremely good. It's, 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 it's up by um, a massive, uh, quite a big multiple on where it was a year or two ago. Mm. Now that's because the interest rates are going up and there's an awful lot of money that's just sitting in deposit in Irish banks. That's right, isn't it? Well, yeah, it's because, it, it's because it's more specifically, it's because Irish banks have money on deposit with the Central Bank of Ireland. So it's sort of the other, it's, it's not that we have money on deposit with them, it's that they have money on deposit with, with the central, central bank. bank, and that's the benefit. That's 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 how they're benefiting because where even where Irish depositors are not doing well from rising interest rates, the uh, the Irish banks are doing well. 
they have massive amounts of cash parked at the uh, Central Bank of Ireland. So they have it's in the, it's in the low tens of billions, something around thirty billion euro between them is is parked in, in an account at the Central Bank of Ireland. And so for the last say ten years or so, they've had all this money parked there. Um, but it's been a drag on them because interest rates were either very low or they were actually negative. So the central, so the, the Irish banks were either not making much money themselves or they were paying out money. And they were, and even worse than that, like they had all this money tied up in the banks. So it, like banks care about the profits they make as a, as a proportion of the money they've got tied up. Like that's the thing they really care about. It's not just the profits. It's the profits as a proportion of all the capital they've got tied up. Mm. So they were in a situation where they had loads of capital tied up in the, in the, in their account at the central bank and they were getting nothing out of it. And that was dragging down their key profitability ratios for years. And they looked to be in a really tight spot for a long time because that, that was where they were. They had all this money. They had to leave it at the central bank. There was nowhere else to put it. They were making very little on it. Their investors were saying, like, this thing doesn't work for me. You know, it's not, it doesn't justify the amount of capital that I've got tied up in this company, the amount of risk that we're taking here. But then things changed very dramatically when rates went up. And now now that rates are up at 3, 3.7% now for the, for the ECB rates, that it's gone from being a drain on them to being massively profitable. So each mm. of the banks would have made something like 600 million from the, the cash they have on deposit with the Central Bank of Ireland. Yeah, I suppose what that all adds up to is all of this um, revenue increase is happening to them by default rather than by any design. So they're not doing anything more innovative. They're just benefiting from external things that are happening to them. But what, if anything, are they or could they be passing on to us, the customers, that they may not be passing on. Well, it's they 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 could be passing on. You know, there's it's the they're commercial banks, and the re, the reason that that banks raise rates to depositors in in a, in a scenario of, of generally rising rates is not out of sort of a sense of obligation or fairness. Uh, the reason that they do it is because they need to retain their deposits, and they, they're trying to. They don't, the deposits for banks are a very useful source of cheap funding. So it's a real, it's, it's a real advantage that banks have over other financial institutions. So the, the only reason the bank really uh, gives more in interest with depositors is because it's worried that they'll take the deposits out and put them in another bank. Mm. Um, and that's not the case in Ireland. As we know, a lot of a few banks have left, a bit less competition. I mean, that's surely paying a part um, in, in, in their decision not to, to pay a bit more to depositors. And I think as well, more generally, like if you look at the banks, the, their, what, they, what would they call their, their deposit ratios, the, the Irish banks are actually swimming in deposits. Like they have lots and lots of deposits, mm. lots of money parked with them, more than they really strictly need. So just from a com- purely commercial perspective, they're not in a rush. There's no strong kind of pressure in them to do this. They're not, their competitors aren't doing it. They've got loads of deposits already. So... I think they're thinking, well, why would I? Yeah, and on the flip side of this, um, they might argue that they're managing to keep mortgage costs down. So can you mind take us through that side of the business, if you like? Because um, I I think it was the Financial Times earlier in the week said that, you know, um, Irish banks were maybe the worst at paying the depositors, all right. but, But in terms of the mortgage offerings, we were, you know, near the top. So they're kind of leaning into that political agenda where housing, mortgage offerings are their priority rather than paying off depositors. Yeah, and if you have if you talk to people in in the UK or the US or Europe, 
who are exposed to mortgages over there, like it's, it's no joke. Like rates have gone up so sharply for mortgage holders in the UK. And the UK is probably the, the, the worst stuck because their rates are going up quickly and British people tend to have like short terms so they have to kind of roll over fairly often. So you're getting ordinary British people who took out a mortgage a couple of years ago and are now having to pay like, you know, almost the equivalent of another salary or half of another salary after tax mm. in their extra in their extra interest. Um, and so and Ireland has now gone from a situation where it used to have some of the highest interest rates on mortgages in Europe. And that was sort of put down to, you know, capital rules and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, now it's got among the lowest. Uh, places like Germany and other in France um, have passed on their, their mortgage rates to the to, to mortgage holders much, much more quickly. So I think that's, a, personally, it's, it's much, much more important to, mo- to most people, obviously to most mortgage holders, that they that that number stays low because the, obviously the liability that most people have in their mortgage is way way greater than the kind of what the money they have parked in the deposit account. Mm, yes, absolutely. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm speaking to Sean Keyes, who's finance correspondent with the Currency. Um, Sean, now um, I want to go back to that issue of competition that you referenced there earlier. Obviously, we've got a very narrow banking sector now in Ireland, and I heard a story from. Um, a colleague earlier in the week about her husband who'd been employed in the in a setup a startup from a financial institution for two years and they just decided uh, a month ago that's it we're done the regulations here are too much we're never going to get through them do you think that there's any prospect in this narrow landscape where the Irish banking sector might expand are you getting any sense of any financial services kind of getting more interested in the Irish market because of one you know the country is awash with money, number one, and two, it's very limited and very narrow banking sector now. Well, I was talking to the CEO of um, one of the biggest banks in, in, in the world, um, who's got, they have an office in Ireland, as, as actually as actually most of the world's biggest banks do, something like, I think it's like 14 of the, of the 20 biggest banks have, have a presence in Dublin. It's sort of it's something that sometimes gets lost when we talk about banking in Ireland because we're focused on, on our own ones. But anyway, I asked this guy, Said, you know, was there any prospect of you getting involved here in the retail side? And he's like, he just sort of made a dismissive gesture, and he said, look, every many people have had this idea, many banks have tried, many foreign banks have tried, and they've all lost their shirts. Um, and why is so, that, Sean? Is this still a legacy from two thousand and eight? Do you think, or are we overregulated? Um, what, what, what? It's probably the... both. They're, they're 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 tied up together, I suppose. I mean, in the two thousands. The, whole, the, the global banking industry was very, very different, much more like lightly regulated, much more aggressive. Um, so we had all these banks show, showing up in, in the 2000s from, from outside, from, from you know, the Netherlands and from Scotland and wherever else. And obviously, when all those, when the mortgage, when the, the economy collapsed and all the mortgages went bad, they obviously lost money on that. They lost an awful lot of money on that. And But then the, the direct consequence of that story, the next step of that story was... The central bank took over regulation and they, they, they did it in a big way. And regulation, bank regulation in Ireland, I think it's fair to say, is more onerous than it is in other places, in, in other places in Europe, even though it's all meant to be the same system. But the Irish regulator is known for taking a very, very tough line on it. Um, and so in, in, in the kind of the, the, the previous ch- chapter of the banking banking industry, like before this current, this new this new chapter, you know, where they're, where they're all profitable and doing great, you know, for 10 years or so after the crash or eight years, whatever it was, they were very weak 
and not doing great. They were kind of barely profitable, barely covering their their cost of capital. And at that time, there was a not there was an awful lot of grousing over regulation. And I think the ones who left, they among other problems, they would have definitely pointed to the, sever- the severity of regulation in Ireland at that time. And like, and you know, mea culpa actually. At that time, I was like receptive to that. It mm. made sort of made, sort of made a certain amount of sense. But then uh, earlier this year. We had lightly regulated U.S. regional banks going to the wall. We had Irish banks, which had hitherto been seemed like they were kind of chronically unprofitable, suddenly being very healthy. So, like maybe that's a, maybe that's one for the regulator, where it says, "Look, like it, the reason that the Irish banks were unprofitable before wasn't because the regulations were too tight. It was just the macro environment was wasn't really wasn't good for any bank, any European bank. And now we're in a world of higher interest rates. Banks can kind of do their stuff again. Yeah, and um, just expanding out then to look at what's happening in the banking sector, maybe across Europe a little more. There was that uh, shock announcement earlier. Um, in the week from Italy about a windfall tax or a levy that was put on the bank earnings, which ultimately sent the shares tumbling uh, in the banking sector in Italy. Um, Can you just talk us through what was announced there? Uh, I'm kind of surprised that, you know, we're having these debates in Europe about the banks and the largesse, but it not being passed on to consumers and the government responding to that, but that that discussion hasn't really started here. Do you think something like this might prompt a discussion here? Yeah, I mean, people still hate banks in in Ireland and and in Italy and elsewhere. You know, if you're populist Jordan Maloney in Italy, you know that's that's a message that works for her. Um, people still feel very betrayed and badly about what happened, you know, where, 10, 10, 15 years ago. Um, so I would be if I if I were a bank CEO, it's definitely something I would worry about. Um, and I don't know, I don't know how much that factors into the decision making. Um, when when it happened, when Maloney announced the the, the windfall tax on banks, you saw like Irish banks took. A hit that morning as well by a couple of by two or three percent, which is you know a reasonably big drop. You never know exactly what's causing things in the markets, but you know I think it's a fair interpretation that it might have been you know a bit of extra risk that this would spread to Ireland. Um, but I think that the Italian government ended up rowing back on on their on, on that idea. Yeah, they, the, 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 the impacts on bank on bank you know valuations were so severe. Yeah, they've they've um, introduced some caveats into it with complicated. Uh, they're almost like algorithms to try and calculate whether or not it's net profits on 2022 or net profits on 2023. But I suppose the interesting thing is that they are across Europe starting to inter- introduce these windfall taxes, which are called levies, so they can make them retrospective, I guess. And it's showing that there is a, a political will to actually, you know, introduce these new levies across Europe. And if it can happen to the energy sector and can happen to banking, even in a a limited way, other countries uh, and other companies indeed might might be fearful of what could happen once the principle is conceded, because that's that's a new development, really. Yeah, absolutely. And banking is such a weird kind of technical industry. It took, took me quite a while to kind of get my head around it. And, you know, there's this idea that, you know, for, for years, uh, like Irish banks would be making, let's say, 500 million in profit per year. And when they were announced, the bank's critics would say, look at this, this institution is greedy and they're fleecing us and so on. And like, we need to do something about this. But like, a bank needs to, like, there's so much capital tied up in a bank. There's like, oh, you know, Bank of Ireland has over 100 billion euro, 100 
340 billion euro tied up in that in that company like to justify tying up that amount of money for the people who for the investors who own the bank you, you have to make a minimum amount of profit and the problem for years was that Irish banks were making, even though they were making hundreds of millions of profit, which seems like a lot, mm. it just wasn't enough to justify the amount that was being put into them, and that kind of put them in a very vulnerable position. Um, so yeah, it just it just goes back to it's, it's very for, for if it, when it becomes a populist issue, it's difficult to to defend the banks. Yeah, and you know, as you said, people are still you know very skeptical about them. We've got to do our banking there, uh, but I suppose that legacy is is still remaining. Um, a big part of uh, the political problem at the moment uh, and indeed the social problem at the moment is is housing and the availability of housing but that housing issue is very intrinsically linked to banking not just for individuals but also for developers again I'm increasingly hearing that developers are finding it very difficult to access credit uh, from the Irish banks is that something that you're picking up at all? Yes uh, and I think that's it's something you'd, you'd hear from developers, you hear it even anecdotally from ordinary retail customers who are trying to get a mortgage or trying to remortgage or whatever it is. Because, you know, when rates go up, one thing that happens is banks like tighten their lending standards. You know, it's, it's, you can either charge people more money or you can only give money to the least risky people. But it all, it's all the same idea of like you're tightening up, you're giving, out, you're giving out money less freely. And that's obviously just something that's changed recently. But on the development side, it's the banks have sort of stepped back from that business. Why do you, why do you think that they've done that? Well, it's, it's my understanding is it's regulation like that. Um, property spec, like funding property development, is viewed by the central bank regulator as very risky activity. They would, and so what they did, they, did, they put these risk weightings on. So what that means is they don't outright ban anybody from doing it, but they put such a risk weighting onto it that it becomes very difficult to do it profitably. So the result is that the Irish banks just don't do a whole lot of property development. It's, it's fallen to like the, 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 the regulator is happier when property development is funded by, you know, funds and REITs and other specialist vehicles because they're not like systemic, you know, they're not, there isn't a risk of a, if a REIT goes bust mm. that the economy is going to collapse and the regulator just wants to avoid the economy going bust and, uh, you know, them getting blamed for it, I suppose, as well, as part of it. So that's a good point then. So the regulation that not necessarily just banking regulation, but the regulation which might be holding property development up is stalling the Irish banks from investing because they don't want their investment to go bad. But I've also heard that a lot of the international investors like the the REITs and stuff simply don't want to come to Ireland anymore. Is that because of the regulations and and the, the, the planning processes and the length of time everything's taking? Um, well, it's like if there's, I'm sure there's a whole uh, stew of reasons why they would 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 you know choose not to come here. But I think if we talk talk about what's changed, you, you know they are they are stewarding a load of capital trying to make a return, and it used to be that their options were you know to build an build an office block in Dublin and make a you know a return of seven percent or something like that, um, or to put it into a deposit account and make mm. very little. Now, that's not the 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 the, the, the default option or this the whatever you know, the the benchmark is. Well, we can we can make three point seven percent, four four percent, five percent risk free from investing in bonds or whatever it might be. So the additional risk that you take investing in a in a in a Dublin part a Dublin property 
is less attractive. Ah, so yeah, obviously better options elsewhere, less hassle. It all makes sense in the end. Um, but listen, Sean, that was a fascinating uh, journey through those profits uh, from recent weeks by the banks and thank you very much for giving us your time and taking us through them today. That was Sean Keyes, finance correspondent with The Currency. Sean, thank you very much. Thanks, Mandy. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock and while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're always available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app or wherever you get your podcasts from. My thanks to the producer of this week's Taking Stock, Simon Keane, and also thanks to John Byrne and Stephen Daunt on research with Hugo Silva-Scott on sound. I'm grateful to all of today's guests and if you want to get in contact with us about any of today's items you can email takingstock at newstalk.com. But for now that was Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. Thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day. Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. This is News Talk.